Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, please check out our merch store at beyondblathers.square.site and take a look at the animal stickers and postcards we have for sale. Okay, so this week we have such a special episode. We're going to be talking about hybrid flowers, which are actually such a big part of Animal Crossing. I don't know if you're trying to get the gold rose or just make all the colors of the rainbow, but plant breeding is hard in New Horizons. So we thought it would be fun to find out the actual science behind hybrid flowers. But as you may know, neither Sophia nor I know a ton about plants. (laughs) Although, not to brag, but I got an A in plant science last semester. (laughs) So... I don't know, according to them, I'm obviously an expert. Anyway, (laughs) so we're so excited to be joined today by Vikram Baliga, host of the amazing Planthropology podcast and the new Plant Prof podcast as well. So thank you so much for joining us today, Vikram. We're so excited to talk to you and to nerd out about plants. So yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I was really excited when you asked me to be on because I've been listening to your show for a little while now and I really enjoy it. So it was a fun opportunity. Yeah, I, I'm Vikram Baliga. I am a nerdy PhD plant guy in Texas, USA. I know you've got listeners all over the world, but yeah, I'm at Texas Tech University and uh, I run a teaching and research greenhouse here on campus. And I'm also an instructor in the plant and soil science department, and I apparently needed more to do, so I keep starting podcasts. <laughs> we love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good hobby. Oh, I think so. It's fun. It's so nice to have you on because we've got sort of some of the animal side down, although not mammals, <laughs> but I think like <laughs> plants are actually a pretty important part of Animal Crossing. So yeah, I think this is going to be really good. Awesome. Well, I thought I would talk a little bit just about plant breeding in general. It's something that I think people don't necessarily think about just a whole lot, right? We, we think about it in terms of, of animals because it's something that people talk about quite a bit. And, you know, if you have a dog or a cat, you've probably seen a lot of the results of animal breeding, right? You get different traits and all those different things. Well, you know, if we go back to the 1800s with everyone's favorite uh, Austrian monk, Ger- Gregor Mendel, uh, who, who I think we probably all learned about in a biology class or a history class at some point, and his famous pea plants, where he started to notice that the, the traits of progeny are similar to the parents. And so plants are an easy way to test that because you can go through lots of generations of plants. The traits tend to be, at least at the time, it was thought that the traits were not complicated, right? It was, oh, you either have a, a yellow pea in this plant or a green one or the the kernels are, are wrinkled or whatever. And so it was easy to see through breeding of different pea varieties the presence of, of you know, dominant recessive traits. And there were, there were things he got wrong, obviously, but overall it started this whole, or it was one, I should say it was one of the starting points in this whole field of genetics and breeding and all of that. So, you know, over time, as we have studied this in plants, we found that it was really not that hard to get the traits we wanted out of the plants that we use, whether that is food crops or fruits and vegetables or uh, flowers, like in, in the case of Animal Crossing, that you can actually find fairly predictable results these breeding efforts. And I should say that, that plant breeding is not new. 
and and we think of of things like this sometimes as like oh there's this new discovery and in the grand scheme of things a couple hundred years is not really that long of a time but humans and other animals and just the environment in general has been breeding and selecting for plants for millions of years in in the case of humans for tens of thousands of years where we found plants that we liked and we selected for the traits that we wanted and then we plant the planted those and then you know uh, carried that forward that in in the general or the most basic sense is plant breeding we find the traits we want we pick them we put them in our gardens and then we see what the seeds do after that so in in the case of flowers like in the game we we breed for the most desirable traits. And in general, in ornamental horticulture, we're looking for things like flower color or disease resistance or heat tolerance or cold tolerance or things like that. And in the case of the game, you know, I'm, I'm not super well-versed in it, but it seems like the, the main things you're looking for are different colors of flowers and different uh, expressions of those traits. And ornamental horticulture is kind of a huge thing that, that again, it's one of those things that flies under the radar in the scientific community but if you go to your garden center or wherever, you see the, the, the fruits of all of that work and all of that science. We have now a vast variety of different types of pansies and roses and anemones and all these other different things like you might see in the game. And it's some of it is just for the aesthetics, right? Like, I would love a rose in every color in my yard. And if there's a market for it, plant breeders will find a way to make it happen. I think pansies are a great example of of plant breeding. There are so many different colors of pansies today. If you were to find a wild type, you probably would see lots of reds and yellows in your your pansies. Maybe some blues, but in general, you're going to find plants that have a single face or single color face, not a whole lot of variation on the face of the flower. But if you go to the garden center and look at pansies, there's dozens of different appearances there's some that have like spots on the face or blotches and the blotches are different sizes and can get two to four colors on the face of one flower and all these different things and so a lot of that is just selection people picking the plants that look the best to them and then you know carrying those traits forward or propagating them without seed you know taking cuttings and essentially cloning those plants but a lot of it is targeted breeding efforts they'll take plants that have two different colors of faces and kind of stick them together and see what happens. And so uh, a lot, a lot of the time it just depends on what the market looks like. You'll see different varieties in different places, but, but so say a breeder goes through all this work and comes up with the perfect looking pansy. It has, you know, all the traits they want. It's the right height. It flowers at the right time and the right amount and all those things. We find that a lot of times those traits are not necessarily stable in the next generation. So when they find a trait they like, typically what you'll see in the ornamental horticulture market is you can't buy seed for that type of plant because they stop breeding it. They don't want new traits introduced. They don't want new types of colors and all of that introduced. So what they'll do is actually clonally propagate the plants. So that can be through taking cuttings of the stems or taking root parts and growing new plants. But something really cool that plant scientists can do is, is called tissue culture, where they take a single cell from the leaf of a plant and grow it in an auger solution, and they can get a completely identical clone of the plant. Because it turns out that every plant cell has all the genetic material 
uh, and information necessary to grow an entire new plant. Is that the same for animal cells as well? Or is that just something special with, with plants? It tends to be, well, there, there, that's, in general, it's a plant thing, right? Where any cell in the plant, whether you take it from, it gets a little more complicated if you're trying to take like reproductive tissue from the flowers, but <laughs> any, any other cell in the plant from roots to stems to leaves and, and everything else has all that material. In animals, you tend to think of stem cells as having some of those capabilities, right? Where they're largely undifferentiated, they can be whatever they need to be. But plants can go through this really cool process called de-differentiation, where this is, this is uh, something really interesting in tomatoes. So tomatoes are a great example. Tomatoes are really good at producing roots where they're not really supposed to be. So sometimes if your tomato falls over and lay, lays on the ground, you go to try to pick it up later, and you'll find that it's rooted into the ground. There's a lot of chemical signals that go into this, but pretty much tomatoes really don't care what they're parts end up being they can be stems they can be leaves they can be roots whatever so you can actually pull lots of leaves off of your your little tomato plant when you plant it and plant it either really deep or in a trench and everywhere you pull a leaf off roots will start to grow because those plant cells that used to be leaf tissue can de-differentiate and turn back into those essentially plant stem cells we call them meristematic cells and then become roots and grow roots. Wow. And so it's pretty fascinating. That is really cool. I, I mean, I knew about the those tissues being able to differentiate and propagate in that way, but it never occurred to me that it could be so, I guess, just growing different parts of a plant that you typically think of being as very different, like the leaves and the roots. I don't think of those as associated so strongly. So that's cool. Yeah, and so we we let, we do this experiment with our introductory horticulture students in our lab where we'll give them a ton of different cuttings and say, okay, grow a new plant or make this grow roots, right? We'll take asexual cuttings and tell them to grow roots. But what we have them do is strip leaves or, or stems or branches off and just plant it. And it's funny because a lot of them that have never really thought about it or never have messed with plant science are like, okay, so we're just killing a bunch of leaves. Okay, great. Like, you know, it's not going to do anything, but it's a cool process over the course of a few weeks or a few days in, in some cases of just watching them turn into whatever they need to be. But there's also, you know, so we've talked, I guess, more about the, I would say conventional breeding techniques, but now even in ornamental horticulture, we're using molecular biology to get the characteristics we want and they can now do you know gene insertions they've sequenced the genome of some of so so many of these ornamental plants that they can get in and play with it a little bit right they can change the genetic sequence so like if they need to insert a gene for larger flowers they can do that or if they need to you know uh, breed in resistance to whatever, whatever disease or insect is common, they can do that through molecular biology. So rather than observing it out in the field, they can just go in and sort of skip that step. Yeah, yeah, and do targeted insertions. Just like, you know, so GMOs are kind of a hot button issue, mostly in food, right? If, it, if people are messing with food in terms of gene insertions, pe people kind of get a little bit uh, testy about that. And, and maybe with good reason, right? We don't know... We've only been doing this, what, 30 or 40 years. We don't really know in the long term what that looks like. But for your pansies, I mean, go for it, right? Like most people don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that it takes some of the fun 
and challenge out of, you know, for people who are really avid breeders and collectors. Like I'm thinking of one of my favorite books is The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. Mm-hmm. And just it's just all about this whole other world of people who collect orchids and they'll they'll pay so much for them and it's just it's really interesting and but when you can kind of just go in and make whatever you want clone whatever you want it kind of takes away from like maybe the rarity and adventure of it I don't know (laughs) you know that's actually a really interesting point and I hadn't really thought of it in those terms but I spoke with someone one time who as a family uh, she and her family bred uh, dahlias I don't know if you've seen dahlias they're beautiful huge flowers but uh, they would I think they had a business I'm trying to remember correctly now but I think they had a business where they bred and sold them but there's also competitions for like the the best dahlia or whatever and there you know there's specific characteristics they look for but that was very much just a little family operation and they took the time to you know crossbreed them and pollinate them and and do all that work and I think if you were to talk to someone like that I think they would say yeah I mean I would much rather go through the whole process than just insert a gene. But on the other hand, if you were to go to and talk to a, a company who was, you know, trying to sell these products, I would think they would say, "Oh no, we 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 want to be able to insert the genes exactly where we want them." It's so I, I think there are people, yeah, that would say that, you know, this is taking away from maybe the the artistry that that goes into that that craft because it's when i think about ornamental horticulture i think it's a really interesting mix of art and science because they're trying to come up with something that is aesthetically pleasing and that will work in the landscape or will work with different plants but there's so much science that goes into it as well i think it you know maybe taking some of that human touch out of it does I don't know. For the purist in me, I I feel like that does change it a little bit. Yeah, totally. Um, I had another question, which is kind of related to the game, but we see in the game that there are sort of colors that are easier to create, but then there are colors that are really hard to create, one of them being like a literal solid gold rose, (laughs) which is probably, I'm going to assume is not something real. (laughs) But (laughs) in terms of like those really wild colors that you'd see like black roses or blue roses or things like that, are those technically harder to produce? That's an interesting question. I would think so because some of these like super dark. So, so let's, let's talk for a second about the purpose of a flower in general. Like why do plants even have flowers? Why did they evolve? It's to attract a pollinator. Right, the, the the purpose of a flower is to attract a pollinator, and, and there's been a lot of research into what characteristics of a flower attract pollinators, and a lot of it is by color, uh, by the the size of the flower, by the scent of the flower, and all those things. So, in a lot of environments, it would be the you tend to see in nature lots of yellows and reds and oranges and all these very bright colors. Because the most common pollinators like bees and butterflies and a few others are are probably more attracted to some of the bright flowers. So when we talk about like a black rose, for example, they're going to grow, roses tend to grow in like a full sun environment where a very dark colored flower wouldn't really be advantageous, you know, evolutionarily for the plant. They would want a bright colored flower. So I would think just finding the basic genetic material 
to breed something like a black rose or a very dark, like violet colored flower, you know, which is what most black flowers are, is they're a deep, deep violet, would be more difficult just because it's less common in nature. So some of those traits aren't probably as uh, readily expressed as some of these brighter colors that would evolutionarily make it more likely for a pollinator to visit. That's really interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that when I saw black rose. Like, it, it didn't occur to me to consider how improbable it would be to find something like that out of human care. <laughs> like, just out there. But yeah, of course. Like, why Why would a flower want to be so dark? Yeah, cool. And, and there are some, and we do see some very dark colored flowers, but those a lot of times are, you know, in lower light environments mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And, and we see them, you know, and again, there's, like in any science, there's always exceptions to everything. But I, I tend to think of more of the, the plants that are more heavily pollinated by the quote unquote common pollinators we think about would be much brighter. So that that is interesting to think. And I've never really put a whole lot of thought of it in, in, into it in those terms, but it does make sense that some of these colors would be more difficult to figure out how to get. I'm thinking of it almost like black roses or like the pugs of the plant world. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, don't, so so don't <laughs> don't get me started on roses. I tell you what, like I have this weird love hate relationship with roses in general. Let's hear the tea. <laughs> it's they're they're you know they're pretty and all of that. They're great, but they're so heavily bred that like I I don't know. Like if you go and look at a wild rose, like you almost might not even know what it is. Like it's just well, I don't, I've never seen you know it doesn't look like the perfect single stem rose. And they're susceptible to so many, like if there's a plant disease, your rose is probably going to get it at some point. And so like, we currently actually, so I have, I have about uh, here at, at Texas Tech, I have about two and a half acres or about a hectare of horticulture gardens that I manage as, as part of my job. And we have one rose or one line of roses left on the property. All the rest of them are gone because <laughs> they all got a disease and they all die or they were all going to die. So we had to pull them all out. And so after two years of digging up rose bushes, I kind of hate roses at this point. <laughs> That's fair. I should disclose that my middle name is Rose. So. Oh, I'm so sorry. I still like you. That, I mean, <laughs> I'm taking it personally. But I have this like memory of going to Butchart Gardens in Victoria and BC, and like they have this beautiful, massive rose garden. I don't know if you've ever been there, Vikram, but it's I haven't. Re- I've seen pictures though. Very cool. And I just remember going to every single rose and like smelling each one and they each smelled like so different. It was really cool. I like, I I probably was just like covered in pollen all over my nose (laughs) because I'm going pollinating them all personally. But it was, yeah, I'll never see roses the same way again. Pugs of the flower world. I like that a lot, actually. (laughs) That would be a great t-shirt. Yeah. (laughs) You feel free to use it. But yeah. Okay. I think that's so interesting because, yeah, like I never think of that in terms of plants that we just view aesthetically. But and I imagine that if you're directly cloning them as well, that that would really affect their susceptibility. Mm-hmm. So and, and that's a big thing we talk to talk about in plant breeding is that it, we, we see this happen over and over and over where we have, you know, essentially the same plant, millions of the same plant. Where, yeah, if one is susceptible to a disease, they're all susceptible to a disease. There was, I, th- this it has nothing to do with flowers, but it's interesting. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. So have you ever had banana-flavored candy? 
You notice how it doesn't taste like a banana? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it used to. So there used to be a, a banana called the Gros Michel that, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that we don't, they're not there anymore because the disease came through and pretty much wiped them all out. And so that flavoring came from that flavor profile. And so people eat like the Cavendish banana, which is what is in most markets today. And they're like, banana flavored candy is the worst fruit candy because it doesn't taste like bananas. It's like, no, we just don't have those bananas anymore. That's so like weirdly sad. It is. <laughs> it's yeah. like a depressing flavor of candy, I didn't think. It's the the most depressing fruit candy. To to think that your like little candy is like an extinct subspecies <laughs> of banana. You're like tasting the flavors of extinction. That's Yeah, oh man. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's Dark. that's deep. <laughs> Well, and one day we'll be telling our grandkids about the Cavendish banana and trying to describe it. I know. I know. And, you know, the, I mean, they, they exist. They're just not in production. They're probably mm. in a collection somewhere. But, but yeah, it's uh, – so, so there are things that in plant breeding we have to be careful about like that or, or breeding undesirable traits in, you know, accidentally. A lot of times they'll – and this is one point I wanted to make. Sometimes some of these plants that – end up in the market outside of their native habitat are super invasive, right? Invasive species is a big thing. So you take, I'm trying to think of a, a good example. Some, so I think of some of like our wildflowers. We do a lot of uh, Texas wildflower research here at Texas Tech, and we breed them and improve them for the market. We have several releases as a department that are, you know, wildflowers that we've harvested and through multiple generations bred into something that's market ready, quote unquote. But sometimes we don't necessarily want the most, the one that produces the most seeds or that is the most prolific because we don't want it to become invasive somewhere else, right? In its native habitat, it's fine because it's native, but you take it and put it in somewhere else, you know, and you end up with all kinds of, you know, potentially undesirable <laughs> situations. And so uh, sometimes that's what we're looking for is we want something that doesn't produce a lot of seed or that isn't very readily, like that doesn't outcross with other plants super readily or whatever. Hmm. So like pretty, but not too tough. Yeah, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, well, <laughs> and if you look at it from a plant company standpoint, uh, not too tough is actually maybe a desirable trait for some of the annual plants because they want you to buy more of them, mm. right? Mm. So if they don't, if they only last one season or, or that you can't really collect seed and replant it, oh, you've just got to go, you, but you really like it. You've got to go buy more the next year. And I, so. Wow. Yeah. That's like planned obsolescence for plants. For living things. What? Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there is a lot more truth to that than, than one might think. Wow. Imagine if pet stores did that with like hamsters like oh we'll make your hamster <laughs> die after two years <laughs> that's terrible oh. but it's kind of like that i don't know it, it kind of is it kind of is and you know the, the genetics of a lot of these plants are actually patented the the gene sequence is patented so like other companies can't like take a a leaf and because it's so easy to clone plants so they actually patent the gene sequence so they can if they suspect another company of like selling their their product their their intellectual property they can go and sequence those plants and if it matches up it's like a big legal thing mm. and so it, the the there's a lot more intricacy into you know buying pansies than i think <laughs> this is maybe uh, readily apparent wow the drama 
I love so it. So much drama. So much plant drama. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, and I think that plant breeding, if, if someone is interested in plants, is such a cool field to get into. It's not necessarily what I do personally. I'm more of an applied scientist, so I take the the plants that other people breed and develop, and I go out and try to figure out how to use them in the most conservative way and, and where they fit best in the landscape and all of those things. But it's it's a cutting-edge field. There's so much science and so much funding that goes into that right now that I, I think it's a cool field if anyone's interested. Would this be something that people could fool around with at home? Like like we see in Animal Crossing, like could you just buy a couple different colors of pansies and plant them next to each other and see what happens? You know, yes and no. I think in theory you absolutely could. And if you've managed to get what they call like an heirloom seed that's not heavily hybridized or that will actually set seed well, uh, sure, yeah, you, you know, you, you go through the whole process, they'll naturally pollinate, and if you can collect seed, then you see what you get. Now, again, a lot of these heavily bred varieties don't really produce much seed, so it may be hard to do. I tell you what you can do this pretty well with is different varieties of, like, peppers and tomatoes, because most of them, there's tons of heirloom seed available, and you can hybridize those really pretty readily, you can let bees and other pollinators do it for you just by planting them close. You could get little paintbrushes and go, you know, paint, take pollen from one plant and dust it onto another plant and actually pollinate them yourself if you wanted to. And then, you know, collect seed and see what the next generation looks like for sure. Cool. You can like be your own Mendel. <laughs> yeah, you can get monk robes, do whatever you need to do. It's great. <laughs> Shave your head. <Just> yeah. <laughs> commit. Go, go all the way. Yep, I like it. <laughs> great. Well... We also wanted to talk to you more about your experience studying plants. It sounds like you get to sort of play with plants a lot. Is that a weird thing to say? <laughs> but No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's kind of, I've, I've kind of found my, like, I don't know if like there's a perfect job for someone, but what I do now is pretty close to what I would consider, you know, my perfect job. I get to teach, like in the classroom. I get to uh, do my landscape stuff. My back, my actually my undergrads in landscape design. And then my master's and, and PhD have really been in uh, water conservation uh, in different, you know, avenues. But, yeah, we get to play in the horticultural gardens. I get to work with a, a, a really a good staff of student assistants. I get to do research a little bit. And so, you know, we do everything here from, like I said, we have about two and a half acres of horticultural garden. But we also have a lot of classes that are taught here in my greenhouse facility. So during a normal semester, which... Maybe we'll get to have again someday. I'll run about 500 students a week through my greenhouses in a variety of classes from intro horticulture to entomology to floral design. And uh, so we get to see a lot of students. And I, yeah, I spend a lot of time just playing with plants. It's it's actually kind of great. That is so fun. When you talk about water conservation, your master's and PhD, are you referring to how plants use water? Is that kind of what you were looking at? So I'm, yes and no, I'm more on the human side of it. So for my master's, it was kind of on how plants use water. I studied uh, olive trees for olive oil production down in South Texas. And we looked at different varieties and how efficiently they used water. Because most most of our growers, we found, were probably over-irrigating. And their water resources down there are very limited. Very, very limited. There's some big municipalities there. And the aquifer that they pull from is pretty... Is, is diminishing. And so we wanted to see how, like, 
how efficiently they could use their water based on how efficiently their plants would use the water. But for my PhD, it was more of how do people view water as a resource in the urban environment? So how do they use water in their landscapes? What things might influence them to save water or change their water conservation practices like regulation or pricing or all those things. So I've kind of looked at it on the plant side and the plant physiology side, but then also the applied science human use side of it as well. Wow, that's really cool. And it also so important. Oh my God. (laughs) Like talking about water right now is just... Yeah. And bring it all together. Love that integrated size. Those. <laughs> <laughs> well, and up here where I live, it's pretty dry mm. uh, in, in my part of Texas. And it's funny because I talk to some of my friends that live in like along the, the Gulf of Mexico where, you know, hurricanes hit them all the time and they usually get more water than they want. So I talk about water conservation. They just look at me like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, but for a lot of people, you know, worldwide, water resources are a, a, a big thing. And so... The goal is is not to say you can't grow plants or you can't have a nice landscape or all those things. It's how do we, I, I guess, adjust our perceptions of the landscape and the way we use plants in the landscape or in our food production even to still have the things we want but be as conservative and wise with our resources as possible. Definitely. And how did you become interested in studying plants? Have you always liked plants? You know, that that's, so I grew up, uh, my mom and I lived with my grandparents, and some of my earliest memories were gardening with my granddad. There's a picture somewhere of me at about probably two or three years old just, like, staring at corn plants. And there's, like, no context for the picture. It's just little Vikram, you know, half the size of a corn plant just staring at it. But, no, some of my best memories growing up were of gardening and, lands- and landscaping and just, you know, being in nature and all those things. And... I actually, so when I started college, I did a year of biomedical engineering. Oh, wow. Because uh, I, I was out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, my granddad was a doctor, and so I wanted to be a medical doctor. And then I realized I, I don't like blood, and I don't like calculus. So med school and engineering were not going not gonna to work for me. And so I had a, like a general studies advisor ask me what I liked, and I said, I like plants. I've always liked plants. And so uh, that kind of started me on this whole this whole career path. And I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I love it a lot. I love hearing what people start in versus what they end in. I think it's a very <laughs> satisfying story. You always have like a, a little a moment where you're like, oh, I should do the thing I like. That, yeah. <laughs> who would have yeah, thought? It, it means a lot. Like being able to do something you love and study something you love really means a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you're sharing it so much too with multiple podcasts <laughs> yeah oh, <man. laughs> yeah that's that's been a, a fairly recent development for me but it's been a lot of fun you know I, I kind of just started it at, out of a conversation I had with a friend one day that was really nerdy and plant related and I was like you know what people might want to hear this and then like six eight months later I was like you know what I'm gonna go for it and so planthropology has been a lot of fun it's you know, more about the people than the plants themselves and and why people still like to study plant science and all that stuff. And the plant prof is really just me rambling about whatever it is that I happen to think to ramble about that day. That's great. Is there anything else that you wanted to plug or? That's, you know, that's mostly it. If you're, you know, of course, I'm on more social media than I want to be. But, uh, (laughs) you know, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, 
uh, as Planthropology or on Twitter as the Plant Prof. But also, if you want to see some of the stuff we do here at the at Texas Tech in our department and at the greenhouse between the classes we teach and some of the research we do and just new stuff we install in the garden, you can find me. I'm at Texas Tech Greenhouse on Instagram and Facebook. And so I post a lot uh, just about some of the stuff that we do around here and the student experience and just, you know, a little bit about everything we do. Cool. I'll have to give that a follow. I don't think I'm following that. <laughs> I want to see some more plant content. I've got a lot of the bugs and the mm-hmm. animals, but I need more plants. Obviously, I need to <laughs> learn more about what's going on there. It's, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot to learn for sure. Yeah, I think you're filling like a plant-shaped hole in the podcasting realm. There's a lot of us like animal podcasters, but not a lot of plant podcasters. Well, he's got two, so you've even filled it out more. (laughs) And there's some some really great plant shows, but that, you know, I I do feel like there's still more plant, cool plant stuff to talk about. So, you know, we're, I'm what, a year and a half into it, and I have a list of a whole bunch of people I want to talk to. So it hopefully we'll keep going for a while. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Vikram. That was just so great. I learned so much and it was fun to foray into the world of plants for a bit. Yeah, thanks for having me. And of course, thank you everyone so much for listening. Please leave us a rating and review below. We'd really, really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. And make sure to check out Planthropology and the Plant Prof for more awesome plant episodes. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye! Bye!